before he comes up here. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and adoration for who you are, all that you are, and all that you do in our lives. Lord, you love us, you guide us, you guide us by your word, you guide us through your sovereign will. And Lord, we thank you for Jordan and his family and for their shepherd heart for this fellowship. We ask, Father, that you would continue to work in his heart as he prepares and leads and guides us. Lord, we pray for Jordan as he finishes up his finals this week. We pray that you would give him the time and the effort and the energy to fulfill those obligations beautifully. But above all else, Lord, continue to draw him close to you in devotion uh, during this time. Use that intense study that way. And so, Lord, we thank you for the blessing of our fellowship together. We thank you for Jordan and his opportunity to share the word with us. We pray you'd work in our hearts to hear your word. Speak through Jordan, Lord, and bless our hearts this way. In Christ's name, amen. Those are the steepest stairs. I'm serious. You've got to be careful going up those stairs. Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's, I guess it's an understatement to say it's such a festive time of year. I mean, it really is. It's, uh, it's just, I mean, the, the visuals alone are enough to make you happy, I think. Um, it's just a, it's a beautiful, beautiful time of year. And, um, and I think we all know that it can be pretty easy to get um, distracted and caught up with um, all of the scenery and the shopping and the consumerism, and um, I can't imagine what's on TV. We don't have, you know, cable or satellite, but I can imagine that every other commercial is uh, some new product. And of course, um, we've kind of shifted as a culture from giving to getting. In fact, now advertisers are just they're just kind of open about that, and so. Um, but the Bible says it's better to give than to receive, right? So, um, but anyways, as we, as we think about um, uh, this season, so it's a third Advent Sunday, and as we kind of meditate and contemplate um, what it really uh, is underneath all of the fanfare, all of the festivity, and all of the designs, we're going to jump into a sermon here. I had thought when preparing this, I, th- I said... Um, I said, uh, yeah, I don't want to preach the traditional Advent sermon from like the book of Luke or something. And in all my studies, I said, well, I, gotta, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to choose a, a sermon from Luke. <laughs> so, um, but it, it, uh, it's a good passage for us. It's Luke chapter 2. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 38. Uh, Jay mentioned a moment ago about uh, praying for me, and I'm so grateful for the prayers for, from the church and the congregation. Um, I, I'm coming up on finals week, and then so I'm, I'm volleying back and forth between studying for obscure theological topics and then meditating on the birth of Jesus Christ. Um, I know Stephen and some others can, can, uh, can, can identify with that, but... Um, 
but it's, it's, uh, it's a balance, you know, and it's refreshing to jump uh, into and, and look at the birth of Jesus Christ when you're studying and looking at all of these uh, different things throughout church history and crazy names, people with names like Red Burtis and Retramnus and uh, wondering when I'll ever get to use that in a sermon, but it's good for me to know. It's good for me to know. Um, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25, and it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, or Christ. And he came in the Spirit, he was led, in, led by the Spirit, into the temple, and when the parents, Mary and Joseph that is, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory for your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Bless, be, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Heavenly Father, we thank you now um, that you have pulled us close by the blood of Jesus Christ, by your grace and love that we certainly did not deserve, uh, you cause us to know what the true meaning of Christmas is. And Lord, um, we can be distracted with the consumerism and, and all of the fanfare. And, uh, but Lord, we thank you that this moment in this service on this Lord's Day, this Advent Sunday, Lord, we uh, are looking at, thinking about, meditating and talking about um, what the birth of Jesus means for us and for the world. And so we pray now, O oh God, that you would open our hearts and open our minds, that we would know what you would have us to understand and, and, and know, O oh God. Uh, convict us and convince us of the word of God and let us leave this place different than the way we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, Next slide, the Apostles' Creed. How many of you grew up with the Apostles' Creed? Grew up with the Apostles' Creed. Uh, <clears throat> we believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. And those are perfectly fine words that we confess. We love the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed... Uh, emerged. It's, it's the oldest creed in the church, somewhere around the 2nd and 4th century, and it was actually made to be able to recite for Christians who couldn't read. It's concise, it's memorable, and it's something that early Christians who couldn't read were able to 
uh, recite with their mouth, and it's a summary of what we believe. And there's nothing wrong with what it says, but the issue is kind of what it doesn't say, right? It says, Jesus, who was, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and you just want to say, wait a minute, what happened right here? Right? Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. You know, you want to just hit the brakes. Er, you go, wait a minute. What happened between his birth and his death? In fact, sometimes we can kind of treat the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as if he could have just been born at any place at any time in history because all he really had to do is die. Right? I mean... When we think about it, that's kind, of, that's kind of how our minds are oriented when we read the creed. And I love the creed, but uh, it's certainly not comprehensive. And the, what's important for us and what we're going to try to get at this morning is the meaning of Jesus' birth and unpack a little bit of that, that little space right here. What, what happened here between his birth and his suffering and death? What happened right here? In other words, what was the meaning of his birth? Did he simply come to live a perfect life and die? I mean, if that was the case, he could have been born in Alaska, you know, 4,000 years ago or 50 years ago. But that didn't happen. Jesus' birth, uh, he was not born into a historical vacuum. Um, he, 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 He was born specifically... At the right time, in fact, what we want to say, and what I want to say to you this morning, is when and how Jesus was born was exactly, perfectly at the right time, in the right place, under the right circumstances in history. In fact, he could not have been born at any other time. In verse 25, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. So what is this consolation of Israel, right? When you think of consolation, you think of a consolation prize, right? Uh, Consolation prize is given to people who are disappointed, who are discouraged, right? We've all seen game shows, and if if you didn't win, you're sad, you didn't get the big prize, and they give you a consolation prize. It's something to cheer you up a little bit, you know, so you don't walk out of the door completely uh, cast down. So this idea of consolation, right, it's meant to encourage, meant, meant to pick you up. But the idea of the consolation of Israel, it was a key strand in Old Testament prophecies and a lot of Jewish writings, and it refers to the hope of the nation, right? It's the hope of the nation. Simeon was a righteous, devout man, and he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And so this phrase is taken from Isaiah, and what it represents, what this phrase, the consolation of Israel, represents is a new era in which God would fulfill his promises to Israel. Jesus' birth in the first century under Roman occupation, as we said a minute ago, was not merely a coincidence of history, but the necessary 
requisite condition for his ministry. Story after story told of um, God's deliverance of the Jewish people from Egypt. And it became the high watermark of uh, future expectation for Israel's deliverance. And the Lord, according to Malachi 3, the Lord would suddenly come to his temple with the messenger of his covenant. Jesus is born at a time when the air is rife with apocalyptic expectation. So most of you, I'm looking out at this crowd of people here and I'm thinking, many of you grew up in church. Many of you have heard the story before that the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament was the silent period, 400 years of silence. How many have heard that before, right? Well, as far as inspired scriptures go, that's true, but many, many books were written during that time. There's the apocryphal writings, and there are also many apocalyptic writings. And you think, well, apocalypse, doesn't that talk about the end of the world? Actually, apocalyptic means the expectation that things the way they currently are This is key. Things the way they currently are are about to end and something new is going to start. And and why is there this apocalyptic expectation between the Testaments in the centuries building up to the first century when Jesus comes on the scene? Where are they getting this apocalyptic expectation from? Where they're getting it from the prophets. And the reason that Simeon and other Jews are in this state of expectation is because they're counting down Daniel's 70 weeks. So Jeremiah and Jeremiah 25 predicted the captivity of the nation of Israel, 70 years. And in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel speaks with the angel and says, 70 years, and God actually says, actually, it's 70 times 7, 490 years that Israel will be in spiritual captivity and bondage, right? Darius, King Darius of Persia, he gives him the decree to go back to Israel. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah record this when the Jews go back to Israel. But they're still in not only spiritual bondage, but if you know the history, you know, nation and ruler and general and army after army continue to oppress and occupy Palestine, And so by the time the first century comes on the scene, religious and pious Jews have been counting down Daniel's 70 weeks, and they find themselves living squarely within the final period of the 490-year period, Daniel's 70-week period. And they find themselves, so there's this expectation, and all of these messianic groups are popping up all over the place. There's the Qumran community who has boycotted the temple because it's corrupt with his priests. And there's, the, uh, there's these other different groups of people. There's John the Baptist who's, who's forsaken the Temple Mount also and is baptizing people 16 miles east of Jerusalem in the Jordan River. And there's all these factions and fractions and these groups who are waiting for the consolation of Israel. In verses 26 through 28, Simon's told by the Holy Spirit that he's not going to die until he sees the Lord's Christ. That word, Greek word Christos is the same as the Old Testament word for 
for Messiah, Meshiach. It's the same word. It's just a Greek word for Messiah. The Spirit had told him that he would not die until he saw this one who was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15, right? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, but he'll bruise his heel. And then Moses is told in Deuteronomy, God says to, to Moses, I'll raise up a prophet like you, but his words the people will hear. And so the prophetic expectation is rife, and it's at a fever pitch in the first century, but it's existed for millennia. And God tells him and leads him into the temple, and Simon rejoices. In fact, just right at the same time Simon comes into the temple, so does uh, Mary and Joseph. And the reason they're at the temple, the reason they're at the temple is because the Bible says that the first child to break open the womb shall be holy to the Lord, what that means is the firstborn was to be dedicated for God's service. And so they're going to the temple not only to dedicate Jesus, but also to offer sacrifice for purification. Now, this is interesting because when a woman is menstruating or gives birth, she is impure, and so is her husband and the child. Now, this is important. Ritual impurity does not mean sin. So you can be ritually impure, and it doesn't mean you've sinned, but you have to, you have to uh, be cleansed of ritual impurity. And so they're at the temple for two reasons, to dedicate Jesus and to receive purification from the ritual impurity, and they run into this Simeon fellow. Have I been saying Simon the whole time? Okay, have I? I meant to say Simeon. Okay, well, grammatically they're related, I think, so I'm, I'm off the hook with that, but... Hopefully, but Simeon. They run into Simeon, and Simeon's been waiting his whole life. Some commentators think he may be 115 years old. He's an old man, and he's waiting, and right at this moment, right at this moment, they come into the temple, and they're, they, they're there to offer sacrifices, and here's an interesting thing. They offer turtle doves because they're poor. This is kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? I mean, God decides to enter to empty himself of glory and enter into humanity and he doesn't come through aristocrats and people living in palaces he comes through a poor Galilean couple who don't have enough money to offer a lamb and the law of Moses said for the poor could offer two turtle doves and so they offer uh, the sacrifice of the poor and they run into Simeon I mean there's all these events that if you that we just take for granted because here we are removed by 2,000 years. But if you were there hearing the story, you, it would just almost have been incredible. And God leads them together and he sees this child and he says, Lord, in verse 29, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. He's seen the Messiah. In fact, Simeon is actually the first one to verbally uh, uh, declare that Jesus is actually the promised deliverer. The shepherds worship, but, but they don't say who this Jesus is. They don't really articulate. An interesting fact of prophetic history is the shepherds also are the result of Danielic, the book of Daniel, prophetic expectation. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar made uh, the declaration that he had a dream but he couldn't remember? And if his wise men didn't remember and interpret the dream, he'd kill them all. 
And they said, this is impossible, King Nebuchadnezzar. Who can do this? And Daniel comes on the scene and says, put your sword away. No one's going to die here today. Yahweh is going to give me the interpretation of the dream. And Daniel saved the lives of the Babylonian magicians. And there's this gratitude that the Magi have. And this is why they travel 800 miles from Persia all the way into Palestine to see the Christ child because of the legacy and expectation that Daniel's God was the true God. And through the nation of Israel, God would save the world. Just let that marinate for a moment. That's exciting, powerful stuff. And so he says, I can die now. I've seen the Messiah. I've seen the Christ. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared in the presence of all of the peoples. Isaiah 40 and 5 says, the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Here's what's interesting is that Simeon says, he uses a personal pronoun. He says, I have seen your salvation. Now, why doesn't he just say, I've seen salvation? Why? Because identifying salvation as coming from the God of Israel is, it makes all the difference in the world because Caesar, according to the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, Caesar is actually the one who saves The New Testament and Luke and Simeon are appropriating language that belongs exclusively to the Roman emperor to this child. It's incredibly subversive if you think about it. We take it for granted. But it's incredibly subversive because uh, after Caesar's name, there was inscriptions on coins and documents that said Caesar Soter. Soter is the Latin word for savior or saves. And so the idea that, well, Caesar doesn't save, but the child of poor Mediterranean peasants. I've seen your salvation, and it's not Caesar's salvation. The good news of the Roman Empire was Caesar is Lord. Caesar saves. You can rest because Caesar will bring peace. And so all of these ideas that Uh, goodwill on earth, peace towards men, this this child is going to save people is incredibly subversive language for the time, for people living in the first century. And more scandalous than that is that this one who is going to save has no real political power. He's not the the, the child of aristocrats, of powerful, wealthy, a powerful, wealthy Roman family like all of the Caesars were, you know? They were a ruling class of people, and here comes this child with parents who don't even have enough money to offer the traditional sacrifice of a lamb, and and the child's been born on a bed of hay in a barn. It's outrageous when you think about it. God is pleased to use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And in verse 32, he says, A light for revelation to the Gentiles, for glory to your people Israel. Just to back up for a moment, um, 
One of, one of the things about being a Christian is that uh, some of the things we're saying are really crazy to the world. They, they really are. And we shouldn't, we should, you know, we've got to own that, right? And we, we, we're not ashamed of that. But, but what we're actually saying to the world is craziness. <laughs> it's crazy. You know, the, the world system and way of thinking about power and authority is completely antithetical to, to the way God chooses to demonstrate his sovereign power. Some commentators call it, you know, it's the upside-down kingdom. He's the upside-down king. Everything we know about kingly power and, and rule and authority is completely flipped up on its head in the story of Jesus and who he was and the meaning of his birth. And in verse 32, his birth and this child is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. Israel was supposed to be the light to the nations. This wasn't a new thing. This was old. Going back to the prophets and even uh, the first five books of the Bible, Israel was to demonstrate to the world what it looked like to be in covenant with the creator king of the universe. And they were to shine forth the light to the rest of the nations. And the Gentiles were supposed to see this and, and long and hunger after it. And it did happen on some level, but the Jews and the Israelites were, they were always screwing up, right? You know your Bible a little bit. They were always getting in trouble with idolatry and other things. And they were, they were failing to shine the light. Interesting, Jesus tells us, right, let your light so shine, right? He commands us to be light and salt. The, the, uh, the mission hasn't changed a bit. As God's covenant people, we're supposed to shine the light to the world. As people who are in community and in covenant with Yahweh, the creator king, we're supposed to shine the light. And when we don't, we, we disobey God. We, we fail at that. God wants us to be the light to the world. He wants us to mediate his grace. The church is supposed to mediate the grace of God with its proclamation of Jesus. Genesis 1 and 1, right, is more than just uh, a description of how God made things. God spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light. Psalms says, your word is a lamp to my path and a light to my feet. A light to my feet and a lamp to my path. Right? The light shines in the darkness. And when you're in the darkness, what happens? Right? Any of you walked around the house in the middle of the night, you had to use a restroom or something, and you're, you know, you're fumbling and you're stumbling. You stumble in the darkness. Right? But Christ brings the light. And this is what Simeon is talking about. Um, we're supposed to bring salvation. We're supposed to proclaim the light of God's saving grace to the nations. What's interesting, as we, in, our, in our moment, our cultural moment right now, as Americans, for at least the last 150, in fact, our entire history, God has been bringing the nations of the world to our doorstep. We get kind of caught up in thinking about security, and there's, there's that part of the argument also, right? We don't know all the immigrants that are coming here if they want to do us harm, and that's a perfectly legitimate concern. But maybe we could think about it in terms of shining the light. God is bringing the nations of the world to our door, doorstep, right? He's bringing it to us. He's bringing the mission field to us, and he just wants us to proclaim the gospel and shine the light, of salvation. That, maybe that's how we should think about immigration. 
God is bringing the nations to our doorstep. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, John 8 and 12. And in verse 33, his father and his mother marvel. They marvel at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, a sign or a symbol that will be rejected. So, well, it's not up on the screen anymore, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, but that little, <laughs> we're getting at the, the space in between those two lines of the confession. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and we're inserting the, what happened in between. This, that's what we're talking about, the meaning of Jesus' birth. It was not simply to live a perfect life and then die on the cross for our sins, although that's, that's what it meant, but it was more than that. Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom of God. The Jews who were under uh, oppression and they longed with, with uh, hopeful reminiscence of the time when they, the golden age, so to speak, when Israel was a powerful nation with Solomon reigning, those were the golden years, the monarchy, when they had power and nations came to them and they're dying for, for this restoration. And in reality, the prophets are talking about a time when Israel would not be just a political power with military might, but they would proclaim and shine forth the salvation of Yahweh. That's what Jesus ushers in. The meaning of Jesus' birth is that the kingdom of God has come. That's the meaning of Jesus' birth. It wasn't simply to live a perfect life and die on the cross. He ushered in the kingdom of God. Broke free and the yoke and the chains of oppression. A few weeks back, Craig Doctor, he preached from Luke 4.18 where Jesus stands up in the temple quoting the passage and verse from Isaiah. Is that right? I wasn't here, but is that what he preached on? Yeah, Jesus stands up in the temple and reads the scroll of Isaiah and proclaims that this is the acceptable year of the Lord. The Spirit of God is upon me to preach good tidings to the poor that the oppressed may go free. His kingdom isn't simply uh, uh, one in which sin is forgiven, but a new way of thinking about the world, a new way of thinking about what it means to be human. And Simeon says that this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. The gospel brings down the high and mighty, doesn't it? And it exalts the lowly. Again, getting back to this world's way of thinking, Jesus comes and says and unravels the whole program. He, he completely unravels the world history and the way we think about power and authority and rule. And he says, the first will be last. The last will be made first in this kingdom. This kingdom I'm talking about, the lowly will be exalted and the powerful will be brought down. He's been appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Jesus does divide people. There's a tension here in, 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 in the book of Luke, in Simeon's words. Jesus does divide people. He's going to divide the nation, and not everyone who sees him will see him as their hope. 
Some who see him will see it'll be, like Simeon says, a symbol or a sign to be rejected. You know, the sign of the cross, it angers some people. It doesn't make everyone happy. And Simeon's being really honest about that, and so is Luke. Luke's not afraid of that tension. The sign of the cross and what it represents, that we needed someone to redeem us, that runs against the grain of a lot of, a lot of our thinking, right? We don't want to think that we're weak and lowly and need rescue, but we do. In Jesus' own day, the sign that Simeon is talking about is the cross. The Jews rejected Jesus because the symbol of the cross was a symbol you've been cursed by God. And it actually was true. The cross meant you'd been cursed by God. In fact, Paul picks up on this in Galatians, right? When he says that he became a curse for us. Jesus was cursed by the Father on our behalf, right? He satisfied God's wrath against sin. We think of the, the response of the two thieves, right? And, and that's what the cross does. That's ultimately what Jesus does. There's only two responses. There's no middle ground. No one's in the middle about Jesus. No one. There's either contempt or repentance, right? The one thief says, if you are who you say you are, take yourself down and us from these crosses. And the other thief recognizes who he is, and he says, you know, Lord, have mercy on me when you come into your kingdom. And it says, in that day, he was with him in paradise. Jesus brought the kingdom, his life, his ministry, his message, his fulfillment of prophecy, his dying on the cross as an atonement for us, ushering in the final year of Jubilee, a time of doing good, of loving, of forgiving, of proclaiming the glory of God. And he says this, he says to Mary, a sword will pierce your soul, referring to the extreme emotional pain. It's not all roses. The birth of Jesus is not all roses. I'm sure there's a reason why the flowers or the poinsettias or whatever we use, are, there's red. It's a lot of red in Christmas. I'm sure there's a good reason for that, right? Mary's soul is pierced through. And finally, he says, so that the hearts of many will be revealed. That child born in a barn is the judge of the universe, just wrap your head around that for a minute. He's come into the world to reveal the thoughts and hearts of many. Right? Remember when Jesus was sitting with the Pharisees? He would, he would teach a lesson and it said, and he knew their thoughts. Right? He goes into the house of Simon, Judas Iscariot's father. And the woman comes in, right? And, and, and is worshiping Jesus. And he thinks, this woman's a sinner. This guy's no prophet. And the Bible says, and Jesus knew his thoughts, right? Jesus has come to divide the righteous from the unrighteous, the elect from the non-elect, the, those, those who have contempt for him. In fact, the word reveal the thoughts represents hostile thoughts. Jesus is identifying hostile thoughts. What's really going on is Jesus, the response to Jesus reveals someone's feelings about God. Jesus is a litmus test, right? How a human being responds to the gospel really shows where they're at with God. 
Jesus, Jesus leveled uh, the Pharisees when he said, you can't say you have God as your father and reject the father's son. It's not all roses, but it is all good news. It's all good news. <clears throat> so the conclusion, when you think about the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and his only Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, you can insert this part. In whom Israel's destiny was summed up, being born in the most tumultuous time in Israel's history as the long-awaited deliverer to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons by defeating the powers of darkness and declaring his lordship and inaugurating a kingdom without end, a kingdom above all other kingdoms. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. That's the meaning of Jesus' birth. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we're grateful. We're grateful because you chose us based on nothing other than your good pleasure. You came into this world uh, for the fall and rising of many, and we're grateful, and we offer up thanksgiving and praise this Advent Sunday morning that we were those that you exalted. We were lowly and you exalted us. We weren't mighty, we weren't powerful. Lord, you exalted us. Let us never forget that, Lord, without you we were lost, we were hopeless. And that the meaning of Jesus' birth means that you have ushered us in to a kingdom that has no end. A kingdom that cannot be shaken like the kingdoms of this world. Lord, we thank you for this, this Advent morning. In Jesus' name, amen.